Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact. I am your host, Gene Turnbow. And I am your other host, Susan Fox. And today we are talking to Arwen Ellis Dayton, the author of Seeker... And um, Traveler is the second book, which has just come out. And the third book is Disruptor, which, which scares I'm working me. on right now. <laughs> which is, and this is a young adult series, and um, you look like a fairly young adult yourself, looking at the, the picture and the, uh, you know, and the the the, uh, the back cover. Well, thank you. I'll, I'll take that compliment and make no other comments on it. <laughs> no, <laughs> a lady doesn't say. <laughs> This and a gentleman doesn't ask. <laughs> That's absolutely true. He didn't ask. I noticed that was very gentlemanly. Mm. Is it Ellis or Elise, by the way? Ellis. It's just a Ellis. funny spelling yeah. of Ellis. Well, it's 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 uh, classic. I like it. It fits with Arwen. It does, doesn't it? It does. Um, I know. I know at least three Arwens now. <laughs> Do you? I, I have only ever in person met one who was a daughter of a friend of mine. So she's she's nine now. I, I've never met another adult Arwen in person. I've met a few over the internet. Hmm. Okay. It's one of the great names now. Who knew? It never seems to be taking off, which is good. It's always, it's always somewhat unique. So the first book in the series is called Seeker. And uh, I'm going to read from the uh, liner. Um, the night Quinn Kincaid takes her oath, she will become what she has trained to be her entire life. She will become a seeker. This is her legacy, and it is an honor. As a seeker, Quinn will fight beside her two closest companions, Shinobu and John, to protect the weak and the wronged. Together they will stand for light in a shadowy world. And she will be with a boy she loves, who's also her best friend. But the night Quinn takes her oath, everything changes. Being a seeker is not what she thought, her family is not what she thought, and even the boy she loves is not who she thought. And now it's too late to walk away. So I've started reading this book, and it, it uh, you don't waste any time. You just jump right in. I mean, it's all action. I mean, this, this book is just action scenes. <laughs> well, I, I say you, we do take a few breaths here and there, uh -huh. but a lot has to happen in the book. And, and so I sort of had to get started. Yeah, and you sure do. And uh, 
Quinn, Quinn Kincaid's illusions as to the nature of the world are shattered very quickly. And, uh, and, and things go to hell in a handbasket very, very fast. This is very hard to discuss without spoilers. Mm, so we're going to make you guys go out and read the book. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's not what you think it is going in. Oh, she's going to be, you know, protecting the weak and blah, blah, blah. No, <laughs> it turns out they are not protecting anybody, but they're, but the family's own interests. They're, they're assassinating people for money and, and it's all horrible. And what happens? It's pretty bad. I mean, I, I feel like I was somewhat inspired by the fact that we all have some, uh, loss of faith, I think, as a teenager, you know, of course, in our ordinary lives. Mm-hmm. It's of a much minor, a more minor nature than anything that happens in this book. But um, the difference between what Quinn was expecting and what she gets fascinated me. Because if you're not expecting a lot, you're not quite as shocked. But if you're expecting mm-hmm. something wonderful and it's the opposite, then picking up the pieces after that is a little bit of a different beast. And this is a reflection of, of the same rite of passage that all teenagers go through, all, all young adults go through. We all eventually have to learn that the world is not how we imagined it and come to, come to terms with it. I hope that your world is not exactly like Quinn's world because oh, that would be interesting, but I would be sorry for you. No, uh, but no. I like to say that none of us gets through our teen years alive. <laughs> mm. And, you know, to some degree, I think that's true. Yeah, I, I Jean's should. son is about to turn eighteen, so this sort of thing has been much on our minds. You know, this the the general theme, anyway. Not that I expect him to be like turning around and trying to assassinate me. <laughs> uh, well, nor does he have the power of teleportation or magic <laughs> weapon that uh, you know can change form. He'd love one. Boy, does he want one of those? You don't know a hundred percent, you guys. Yeah, I'm sure we don't. <laughs> Now, in the book, uh, the technology that allows the seekers uh, to move about uh, involves going to a place they call there, which is really nowhere. It's kind of like between in the Pern books, for more or less mm-hmm. the same reasons. It's not a place. That's true. It is It is similar in that way. And I was inspired. It's certainly not an unknown concept in other science fiction and fantasy books, but I was mm-hmm. particularly inspired by uh, The Elegant Universe, which is a book you may be familiar with by Brian Greene, which really talks about string theory and the fact that the more we come to understand physics, the more the idea of curled up hidden dimensions appears to be what actually uh, is the universe. So this was a little bit my take, a slightly fantasized version of, you know, what is becoming accepted as physical reality. In fact, there is a quote from The Elegant Universe by Brian Greene uh, in the uh, frontispiece right before the Scottish, the map of the Scottish estate in the book. By now, you should be convinced that our universe may have additional curled-up spatial dimensions. Certainly, so long as they are small enough, nothing rules them out. And it's... Now now it's suggesting to me that none of this is magic. It is all technology, and any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, right? 
It's a line I've been treading very carefully through the books. And in book three, uh, I commit. I mean, I've always committed, but I, I let the reader, I let the reader see the genesis of the mm-hmm. seekers and their implements. We, we can say whether they are magic or scientific implements becomes more clear in the third book. Well, and is it, uh, is it Shinobi's father? Who, Shinobu. Shinobu. Uh, his father is working with one of these devices. And uh, uh, it has its own vibrations and it has to be carefully uh, carefully tuned in order to do what it does. And uh, he's, he's building one, I think, or fixing one, one of the two. It's not clear from the... It's not clear from the scene which one he's doing, but uh, it's this stuff is like metamorphic technology. It uh, it can change shape depending on what the user needs it to be. It's that that's right. the The weaponry was very enticing to me when I came up with the whip sword, which, as you're mentioning, is this weapon that can uh, take the shape of any blade the user instructs it to take um, and but will also not cut its own user. It mm-hmm. would sort of melt over its own user's flesh, whereas it would pierce somebody else's. Uh, I don't know what was so intriguing to me about that particular weapon, but it was definitely important in coming up with Quinn's world. I know that there is actually such a thing as a whip sword. Is there? What? Yes, it is, uh, and I read it, uh, our, uh, my son has a book on uh, ancient weaponry, and it's a kind of sword that's razor sharp, but it has a blade that's flexible like a whip. Huh. And it is, uh, the SCA has a uh, has a word describing a weapon like this, and that word is pandybat. Oh, a, a weapon which is potentially more dangerous to its wielder than any opponent. Eh? Yeah, you like can hurt nunchucks, yourself. for example. Oh, no kidding. Uh, more dumb kids have hurt themselves with nunchucks than have ever been hurt by uh, by someone else with nunchucks. Well, I didn't realize that a whip sword was a legitimate weapon outside of the secret mm-hmm. world. That's fascinating. Yeah, they're about uh, they're about I don't know three and a half four feet long and. Uh, you whirl them around you, and uh, they're, they can be extremely dangerous, and they can slice your enemy to ribbons. And give yourself a pretty good, quick, good haircut while you're at it. Yeah. Yeah, but it's a, it's a real kind of – it's an actual kind of sword. It's uh, And the great thing is that they can be coiled up. Mm. Yeah, and and uh, you, you, you pull them out and uh, – Whoppity, 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 whoppity. Yeah. Yeah, they're probably a, a royal pain to put back in the scabbard. But yeah, how do you roll it up without cutting your fingers? Or cutting your fingers off. Yeah. I mean, these things are supposed to be just razor sharp. But uh, yeah, anyway, a bit of serendipity so, there. So they lack they lack the one safeguard of the whip sword in right. my books, which is you are completely protected from your own. Not someone else's, though. Right. Yeah, and that was that was a, a nice touch in the opening scene. Uh, Quinn is uh, in a practice duel, and the her own weapon is incapable of hurting herself. And and it, they have the their weapons set up in such a way that they can't actually hurt anybody else either. So that's uh, so they for can training, practice, yes. yeah, for training purposes. So they can use the real weapon without actually killing anybody. So. But yet, yet, 
The complexity of the setup I just found amazing. I mean, this is the most dense Gordian knot of a plot line I have seen in a long time. You must well, have I, spent. I, I hope we slash that knot <laughs> at least partway through the book. But it's true. The the series sort of showed up in my mind as a fairly complicated tapestry that spanned quite a few generations, and figuring out how to introduce it and allow it to keep moving uh, took some doing. But luckily, I have three books mm-hmm. to sort of iron out the pieces of it and make it a little less naughty by the end. Reading this book is like watching somebody disassemble a wristwatch. (laughs) (laughs) It's that. It's every piece has its place. Every bit is precisely where it needs to be. Yeah, don't skim over it or you'll miss it. Yeah, you cannot skim this book or you'll miss vital pieces. I really like that description. (laughs) We'll we'll write it down and... Use that as a log line somewhere. So um, you've been you've been at this a while. This this book existed in uh, 2013 because it was optioned as a movie, right? That's right. It was a, an interesting uh, story. I didn't really realize there's this underworld to publishing, which is the somewhat unofficial gray market, I might want to say, of uh, Book Scouts, where there are people who work as Book Scouts for Hollywood production companies. They might have some other job in publishing, but on the side, they're keeping their eye out for, you know, what what, uh, producers are looking for. And even when it's still in manuscript form, if they think it's appropriate, starting to kind of funnel it into Hollywood. So we had an interesting experience with Seeker where... We still we hadn't yet uh, finalized a deal with Random House. We, we were still had several publishing houses in the bidding, and uh, Mark Gordon, who's a fairly well known Hollywood producer, uh, was calling to option it. Now I I didn't even know this was possible. I really was sort of unaware of how books became movies. Other than that, obviously some of them did. So um, it was. Quite a surprise, a pleasant surprise to have the interest even before the book deal was done. So you had several publishing houses fighting over your book. Yes, I <laughs> They did. must have been impressed with your previous work. You know, I honestly think they just liked this particular series. It was good for them. I, I'm sure that it, if you're an unknown author to them, it helps to know you have previous books, so it's not a one-off. Uh, so t- to that degree, I-, I think it helped. But I-, I really think they were just interested in the series. And I also have a wonderful agent who knew who to bring it to and who this book would fit with. That's pretty, pretty impressive. I mean, new authors struggle and fight and claw to get an agent that has any idea what they're doing. And you seem to have found one that's made of solid platinum. <laughs> <laughs> well, she is really amazing. I, I have, I can, I can uh, say nothing but amazing things about my agent. Um, but I would say that regarding, I had two books before the series, which were just for a typical adult audience in the sci-fi fantasy genre. And I do think those helped me get this particular agent. So your body of work, obviously, 
is contributive to eventually getting a, a nicer deal on something. Was your first book terrifying? Was it? Was it? My uh, first did it book scare you was to death? this uh, kind of classic space opera book that I sold. You know, I was pretty much a kid when I sold it to a little publishing house, and I was so excited to have a deal. And as far as I can tell, they published it and then like uh, stacked up all the copies they had printed and tied weights around them and like dumped them into the Pacific Ocean when <laughs> 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 they were never seen again. Oh. So um, I think I have, you know, the five copies they sent me of that book. Mm-hmm. And I, I honestly don't know what happened to it other than that, the entire publishing house folded up and was never heard from again. So, um, it was terrifying, but on the other hand, I feel like there's the downside couldn't have been worse. So anything better than that, I'm very excited with. Mm, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's one of those, it's like eat a live toad first thing in the morning and nothing worse will happen to you the rest <laughs> exactly. of the day situations. Everything else is, is cake compared to that. The, the, Funny, the one even more ironic note is that shortly after I signed the deal with that little house, um, a friend who worked at Penguin gave them my manuscript and they said, oh, we'd love to publish this. So <laughs> nice. <laughs> but I, you know, but it's, uh, you'd it already signed the, yeah, you'd already signed the contract yes. with the little house that went. The little well, house that wasn't. The little house, the house that, that was That was briefly. And that's. That's the danger with uh, with the publishing industry. There are so many, so many people have so many big dreams and ideas, and not all of them have a clear idea of how to accomplish that. And so you have these little companies that uh, that look good on paper. You know, they look they look like they're well put together, and then you you get in with them, and they they run eight months, and they're gone. It's true. You know, I think. If I took the silver lining from that experience, though, as a young writer, it was still hugely flattering that somebody wanted to publish the book, even if it didn't end up being a very mm-hmm. capable someone. It was it was a step on the ladder of maybe I can do this. Did you get the rights back? And if- oh yes, I got okay. the rights back. Um, and I actually later, my second book was um, published first by Penguin. And then later I got the rights back and sold it to Amazon when they opened up their own sci-fi imprint called 47 North. Um, and at the same time, gave me an offer on that very first book. But I, I haven't read it in so long. I was reluctant to hand it over to anyone until I could actually see, you know, how good or bad it was before mm-hmm. I actually put it out there in the world. Uh, that's probably the scariest thing about writing your first book because you know going in – that uh, as any first time author does that you have no idea what you're doing and uh, you're just hoping nobody else notices <laughs> and that it's true. going to be good or you know, you'll learn by the end and mm-hmm. be able to go back and fix the parts where you didn't know yeah. but i i the funny thing is i feel that way all the time anytime i start a new book it's sort of like you're starting from scratch the only thing you've taken with you is that you know it's going to feel like you're starting from scratch and you just sort of live with that until it gets going again. So I, I don't I don't think perhaps people who've written fifty novels sit mm-hmm. down and it's just old hat, but for me it's still like I'm inventing the wheel each time. And we had Lawrence M. Schoen uh on the Event Horizon uh, um a couple of months back, I think. 
and uh, he had very similar comments about <laughs> about the uh, about the process of writing and and what it was like. It's uh, and he's on the nebula ballot, and now. yeah, right, he's, exactly, yeah, and he's on the nebula exactly, and so it's so you're in good company. <laughs> yeah, you're traveling well. So, um, how long does it take you to produce a book like Seeker? I mean, you're you're working on you're working on Disruptor, the third book in the series now. How yes. far how far are you? I'm scared already. Disruptors, you, like John, they scare the willies out of me too. <laughs> Uh, it is a scary weapon, the disruptor, but all of the books are sort of double entendres on something else in the story. So there's other disruption as well mm-hmm. that happens in the third book. But yeah, um, Seeker took, uh, it's funny because my previous book, which is called Resurrection and was really a straight sci-fi book that took place in both ancient and modern Egypt uh, with three civilizations sort of racing each other to find something left here in the time of the, uh, you know, ancient Egypt. Um, and that was getting a re-release, I think, in 2012 from Amazon. We'd gotten the rights back, and they did a really nice uh, new version of that book. And it sold really well, and it went to the top of all of their charts um, and was the number one sci-fi book and, and fantasy book. So you can see that nobody can tell whether I write sci-fi and fantasy, and it's been that way for years. But um, mm-hmm. it, but it was on the top of those lists for quite a while in the U.S. and in the U.K. And um, before it came out, though, I, I had a sense well there, that they would Amazon would do a fairly good job releasing it. It was one of their first books under the Stu imprint. So I decided that I needed to have the manuscript for Seeker absolutely finished by the time that book came out, so that. If I was lucky, any impetus Amazon gave to that book would help me get the perfect agent. So mm-hmm. when you ask how long it took to write Seeker, it took a lot less time than it probably normally would have because I knew I had to hit that deadline, self-imposed deadline, <laughs> which nevertheless I thought was very important. So it probably mm-hmm. took a few months to work out the outline. And then I think I did the first draft of Seeker in 90 days. Wow. <laughs> Now, I, of course, it was many, many months after that of Mm -hmm. revisions and so on, but, um, I felt like I had a fire under me and I, I I didn't let it sit. That's awesome. You had the fire in your head under you. (laughs) My head, beneath my bum, keeping me going (laughs) anywhere I needed it. That is, that, that is awesome. I mean, nothing, nothing inspires more like something that absolutely must happen. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's amazing what you can do when you don't have a choice. It's absolutely true. And uh, I, I'm even experiencing that now on book three, mm-hmm. thanks to having a wonderful publisher and se- them sending me places for the release of these books and doing some touring and so on. Um, I'm a little behind. So I'm now here on book three, kind of in the same situation I was back with the secret manuscripts, just making sure I get it done by mm-hmm. by the deadline. So it sounds like you're doing um, about uh, one of these about every eight months on average. Is that well? I think if I added up the time, that might be right. I, it's it's year on year with the series uh-huh. Seeker. I had a little more time because even after I sold it, the publication date was still far away, and we had time to work on it. But um, 
then your book comes out and they're sending you on the road and you're doing, if you're writing YA, you're often doing a lot of uh, school visits, which is mm-hmm. incredibly fun. Mm-hmm. But all of these things are you're on the road. You're not, it's very hard to write during that time. So probably if I compress it, yeah, eight months, but it feels like, you know, a year. Yeah. It's busy, busy. <laughs> it's uh, uh, the, just the amount of energy and the amount of focus that it takes to get something like this done and have it come out so well is, uh, it seems superhuman to the layman. And, uh, I'm, I'm always impressed when somebody does it well as you have. Well, thank you. Uh, it's been interesting to write particularly in the genre because I've gotten to go all over the country and meet young people who mm-hmm. read. And that has been the most inspiring part of the experience for me, both to see kids in uh, different, you know, from different backgrounds, different cities, different parts of the country, what they like to read, how they interact with it. And I feel like that has actually influenced the way I look at my characters and the way I look at story. Not that it would necessarily draw me to something, a story that I wouldn't normally have been drawn to, but I feel like it's added a different layer to the characters I choose and what feels real to me just by meeting so many kids. So it's been, that's been a, I feel like very good for me as a human being (laughs) to do that part of the publishing process, even if it takes away from the writing time. Well, I would consider it research. Absolutely. Because it's, uh, you can't, uh, you can't get better than talking to actual young adults. (laughs) Well, that's true. Um, so your characters, are they based on any of your children or other people's children or other real people in general? I don't think there's ever one specific person who matches up to a character, but of course you take things you like and things you hate from yourself and people around you and find ways to make those things much better and much worse and turn them into characters. Uh, in Traveler, there's a 12-year-old boy who is in some ways horrible and in some ways wonderful. He was one of my favorite characters in the second book. And... Um, he, I feel like, is not necessarily based on any particular kid I know, but based on the fact that I have children and I'm around children all the time. I think I sometimes have a, because of that, in this particular time in my life, I have a good feel for um, boys and their uh, their bad side and their good side. So I wouldn't I wouldn't pin it on any any real person, but I'm certainly influenced by the kids in my life. Well, and, and, uh, you know, talking about the bad influences, uh, uh one of the prime characters, uh, John, who is <laughs> Quinn's love interest, he goes full Kylo Ren. I mean, he just. <laughs> it is sure a good thing that it's very well established that this book came out before that movie. Oh, yeah. I hadn't even thought of that, but you're right. Uh, he, he tricked us in the movie, didn't he? Yeah. Um, I, uh, yes, you know, I feel like (laughs) this is, this is one of those gotcha moments. (laughs) Like who is he based on? But I, um, you know, Uh I feel like every one of us knows at least one person in our lives when we were younger who had a, an undue and, uh, 
bad, but influence on us, but bad in a way that we didn't always know was bad at the time. It was a little more insidious than that, whether it was a certain teacher who gave you more attention, but was actually trying to change, you know, your outlook in a way that wasn't, wasn't helpful to you as a teenager or a friend who, uh, you know, appeared to be a lot of fun, but was actually getting you on drugs or whatever it is. We, we've all had at least one person who presents themselves as a close friend, but is, is really harmful to us. And for me, John went through that and he went through that with more than one person putting that influence on him. And what is that like when you're very young, when it starts and later you start to see a little bit uh, objectively that maybe that isn't right, but that's what I've been living in for my whole life. So I get the most comments from readers about John. Some of them really like him, believe it or not. A lot of young readers are uh, upset that he's ambiguous. They want him to be 100% evil or 100% good. Well, nobody is 100% anything. As, as I point out to them. But, you know, if you're 12, it's maybe you're used to things being drawn mm-hmm. a little more starkly. Um, but that fascinated me because getting inside his head enough to feel like he was making the right decision by his lights was hard. But um, I hope I was succeeded in that challenge to some degree. I think you were. John just seems to be one of those characters who knows what the right thing is, but has no idea how to get there. (laughs) Exactly. Well, it's impossible. What he's been given as the right thing is, is Purely impossible unless he's willing to do a lot of damage to other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's really he's really had the rug pulled out from under him, and then he does horrible things as a result of that, uh, because he's trying to he's trying to fix the fix his universe. That's right. And he just the more he does, the worse it gets. It's uh, and he makes and because of that, he makes um, a, a rather marvelous anti-hero character. And uh, uh, I have not read the succeeding books. You will. Uh, Susan, uh, you will. Is, I don't. Is, no, it doesn't. I don't disagree with that. But he's yeah. got a long way to go to redemption. We see I'm not some, saying he's going to make it. I'm just saying I thought if I could get inside his head enough, there might be a chance. Um, Shinobu has his own uh, difficult road to hoe. He's established by the second book as having. Uh, you know, problems with drugs and is dabbling with some very addictive drugs indeed and kicks them. But it shows his pattern of addiction, which makes him very vulnerable to to another magic later on. And I'm not going to ruin that for you, Gene. You're going to have to read the second book. Yeah, yep. I'm- but there was no other way to establish him as as an addictive personality without showing an addiction. Right. To something. Yeah, to something. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I think. I've never done drugs, but I feel like I am prone to that sort of behavior in some ways, even though they're silly ways. Like if you put a poker game on my phone, forget it. Like <laughs> I will be, it will be 2 a.m. It's like not a po- not even a poker game. I play with other people, just like I'm playing against the brain of the, of the app. And I'm, it's like 2 a.m. and my husband will remove my phone and delete the app. <laughs> you know, so I, even though it's silly or email, uh-huh. like I'm, it's, I've cleaned out my email box after 16 hours when I should have been writing. I mean, it's just, 
so even in these small day-to-day things, I've always felt like, hey, if I hadn't been put on the straight and narrow as a young kid, I could, I would probably, I would have fallen for those sort of things. So yeah, just be, just be grateful. The worst thing you have to deal with is eating that third fudge brownie when you, you shouldn't. <laughs> Exactly. In Shinobu's case, it would be like the 40th fudge brownie, and that really could be a problem. That's uh, The characters are so well delineated and, and so, so colorful. Do you find that the character development process is different for a young adult book than for one aimed at adults? Or? Boy, not, a, not in this one. I think <laughs> I didn't complex. really do anything. I, I tried... I guess I tried to dial back the uh, vocabulary here and there. Um, although if I compare my books to other books for this age group, I don't think I really did. Um, I think some authors dial that back a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, I really dialed nothing back. I suppose there's not a lot of graphic sexuality in this book, but... Um, I don't think there would have been, regardless of the audience, it's just not a big part of this particular story. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, I mean, I, I have always felt like a fully formed adult from the time I was 11 or 12. Of course I wasn't, but I, I viewed myself that way, and I don't think anyone really views themselves differently than that. So I think the characters, while of course they're going to change, they change in the way adults also change. So, um what in what, equally what rich? Mind, what to your mind separates a book, a young adult book, from uh, a mainstream or a regular adult regular book. adult book? Well, the line is very blurry in that a lot of older fans come to young adults, and I have definitely seen this now that I'm writing for this audience, where you, you get people in their 20s and 30s who just like this kind of thing. Um, really, the delineation is the age of the protagonist. And I've seen books that violate that, like the sweetness at the bottom of the pie. Have you ever read that series? But the, you know, the girl is, I think, 11. She's a detective, but it's clearly not written for young adults, clearly written for adults. It's sort of from an adult's eye view of her versus Mm -hmm. from her view. Um, But I really think it's the, the age of the, of the main characters and the viewpoint if the viewpoint is through those characters, then I think um, it's young adult. Mm-hmm. I see. Okay. That's interesting. <laughs> so um, it, it's the, the, the complexity of the, the plot line. I mean, it, this is just when I spoke earlier of the, uh, the Gordian knot of a plot line. I mean, this thing, every single fiber connects uh, s- Connects somewhere, and and, uh, and and different centuries and different backstories, mm-hmm. and it it's it is one of the more intense tapestries of plot that I've seen in in quite a while. Time travel one one second per second. Um, well, um, I sixty I have seconds to say per that... sixty seconds per minute. Yep, You're moving forward, sleeping forward. through That's centuries. Right. Um. I, I, first of all, I appreciate those comments because it was a lot of work to tie these threads together. It was certainly, this is certainly a series I could not have written by the seat of my pants. Like it required plotting this out ahead of time and making sure that I was being efficient with the chapters and they were achieving 
hopefully something for many plot lines in each chapter. Otherwise, they would have been a th- those books would have been a thousand pages long and extremely boring. So, um, you must have some chart on your wall. I do. It's not so much on my wall. I have a huge whiteboard and I use it all the time. And then I'll take picture. If I have to erase it, I'll take a picture of what was on it. You know, in case I need to refer back to it, which is not really practical because there's just a ton of pictures of my whiteboard. Like they're not, they're not labeled particularly, but, um, it helps to sort of draw things out. And I do have a timeline on one corner of that board that has stayed up for two years. Mm. So that's been helpful. Yeah, it's it's going to be real hard getting that sucker off <laughs> when it comes time to start the next project. I, I sprang for the whiteboard. That's porcelain. Okay, it erases uh, a little uh-huh. better. <laughs> <laughs> this is something that every author that we have had on the show has said, is that uh, they outline everything. They plan everything. The world building often takes as much or more time than writing the story does. You know, are doing the doing the character and story. Sometimes a lot more. We heard from uh, Brian Herbert about how his father had outlined a thousand years of future, ten thousand years of future history before he started Dune. Yeah, the the notebook on Dune was like five hundred and sixty pages. That's amazing. I mean, that is an example of why it's worth it, though. I oh, mean, no. that particular oh, yeah. book, the the politics, the minutia that shines through so fascinatingly. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that anyone else could have nailed that to that degree, but it was clearly worth it in that case. And for them to continue on, I mean, they they could continue on truly in the vein he had started. Oh, and, and they're doing it. Yeah, yeah, and they are. Are you are you uh, planning on doing more work in this universe after the well, series is it's done? it's certainly... It's funny because... I always felt like three books would tell the story of these four characters. And even though there are other characters introduced, they're sort of introduced um, tangentially or in a way that highlights the four, what's happening with the four main characters because it is their story. So these three books will satisfyingly wrap up their story. And when I say satisfying, I don't necessarily mean a happy ending. It just means it's a satisfying ending, which I think Mm -hmm. is a balance between giving you what you want and not giving you what you want as a reader. Mm -hmm. Um, But I should say giving you what you want and surprising you. It's a balance between those two things. Um, But certainly with the thought I've had to put into the previous generations and what might happen next and what comes up in the third book, it could continue. I certainly wouldn't rule it out, but um, well, I sort of leave that for a future time. Start whole new story threads and, and yeah. work in the work in the same universe. I'm and, gonna leave uh, a few hooks as uh-huh. it were that I could hook into later if I wanted to. Well, that sounds enticing. <laughs> I like that idea. I want to know more about the dreads. The the semi eternal uh, guardians of the guardians. And you will. And we will. Who okay. Guards but the guards? Who guards the, you know, who watches the watchmen? Well, it's the <laughs> dreads. And, um, do they have a basis in, you know, the, the mythology of, of Europe or other places? Because I, I read this and going, I'm not placing these people. Uh, not particularly. I think these sort like of druids. eternal, I, you could say that their basis is in all mythology, I suppose, that there's somebody who, feels eternal or is essentially eternal who shows up unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. 
obviously as a thread through many different mythologies, but they weren't specifically based on one. Okay. I was wondering if they were going to turn out to be Druids or ancient Egyptians or something. And, and no, I, I could never get a, a cultural grip on them, but I guess that's the whole point. Funny. Well, they it, don't there look is an Jewish. answer. There is an answer. <laughs> I, I'm, excuse me while I smack this man. <laughs> That's uh, the characters, uh, the, the, uh, the dreads, you know, I Well, thought. she gets her, she gets a, uh, a, a ebook or an e, um, no novelette of her own at least. Yeah. That's uh, right. The, the mod, mod is mod, a, the mod young, is a, the a young secret dread. favorite usually when people come up to me, they'll say, you're never going to believe this. And when they start like that, I always know they're going to tell me that they love Maude or Maude is their favorite character. So she's, she's the, the cult, the cult character, I suppose. And she is, she's actually so old that she often forgets her own name because okay. it is, has been used so seldom. That's a or I would say she has become, uh, so little human that she forgets her own name. <laughs> the more time she spends in our world, as you start to see in the second book, the more she starts to become slightly more like the normal people you might encounter in the world. And then suddenly she isn't. Correct. <laughs> yeah, she's she's a lot of fun as a character. Just the, the reading the chapters as you go through this book, uh, it's uh, each chapter is labeled according to the perspective of the person that uh, the chapter is about. And she has several of her own chapters in this book. And uh, every one of them is... Uh, but they don't all say mod. Sometimes they it's just they the all. young dread. Yeah. <laughs> and, but it's... Uh, you get to experience her slice of the story from her perspective and uh, without necessarily having to climb directly into her head, but uh, it's still... It is not what you would expect from a human, uh, a human being with human relationships. It just it does not seem to work on that plane at, at all. Well, the more we know about the people she the she is associated enough. with, the less human they they seem to be. Mm-hmm. Mito, just you wait. Just you wait. So the the uh, the whip swords. <laughs> and the Athames and I'm so, the lightning I'm so sorry, guards. but you cut out again. I don't know if it's my headset, but I, I, I haven't really be. moved it. Yeah, I think it might be okay. because our, our signal's strong here. Okay. Well, sorry about that. That's and okay. I'll hold a little uh, more still. Um, let me make another note of that. Uh, 45 minutes and 20 seconds. 45, 20. Okay. So, so the magical implements, the whip swords, the athames, what was that helmet called? Focal. Focal. And the disruptors. All stuff that's extremely advanced technology, and yet the world around them seems to be far less advanced than that. And that these, these implements appear to be hundreds, if not thousands of years old in their origins to the point where the seekers no longer know how to make any of it. Correct. And um, I feel like that gets to the point of what is the origin of uh, this species of person called seeker? And there is an answer. And um, 
it just sort of comes around slowly uh, through the second and third book. Mm. Yeah, I was pretty sure it didn't involve linseed oil and <laughs> I don't know. Oh, don't, <laughs> don't. Yeah, I mean, it's it's these these things are not of this world, or if they are of this world, they are of a world that we do not know. And this is, in fact, the setting, the initial setting. It's it's uh, we are given the initial trial of Quinn, um, you know, in this in this uh, um, this practice fight that she's in with Briac or Briac. Briac, you said Briac, it right. <laughs> who is uh, who is her mentor, uh, teaching her to become a seeker, uh, and. And oh, by the way, her father. And her father. And yes. her father. <laughs> and, but that's uh, less important in that scene, is it? And uh, the fact that they are living in a Scotland we do not know uh, becomes apparent. It, it just sort of unfolds before us. It's not something that you hit us with right away. Well, in uh, London is not the London you know, and Hong Kong is not the Hong Kong you know later on. Mm-hmm. You know. It's the same yet different. It's a par- it have, seems to be there's a parallel. airships. There's <laughs> a parallel uh, a parallel world, and it, you, it could be a that. parallel world. It could be a slightly futuristic world. I think it's um, I think it's somewhat of a blurred line between. It's clearly a little bit in the future from now. Whether it's in the direct line of the world we're living in or a parallel line, but I see it more as um, an indeterminate number of years uh, in the future mm-hmm. from now. And one thing I, as a kid reading mostly science fiction, um, I felt like it was often either a completely different world than we were living in, you know, or mm-hmm. it was exactly like our world with one or two things that were different, um, you know, in, in the sort of golden age of sci-fi type of story where it's either mm-hmm. people are on other worlds with spaceships traveling around everywhere and everything's completely different or it was like your home is the same, but the robots are taking over the automation. You know, and the doorknob is blue. In a, in a Ray Bradbury story. Um, but I feel like it actually, the evolution of our world happens a little differently where it is certain specific parts of it that change dramatically while leaving most other things untouched. For example, on the road right now, we still have cars from the seventies. Nobody bats an eye. So there's a 40 year trail of the world mostly being how you've seen it, Mm -hmm. even as certain things start to go forward. So for me, it's, I take it more as it's, just an undetermined number of years in the future, and those are the things that have altered. However, the seeker's portion of that doesn't necessarily relate to the world everybody else is living through. Uh, it's it's clear that it doesn't. I mean, it's it's it separates the seekers from the rest of of uh, the rest of humanity. The, yeah, the rest of humanity, the the human stock from which they come, uh, and they are they are set apart and set aside. And uh, and they have to they have to deal with their fates and and help guide the fates of others despite this separation, and uh, and therein lies so much 
of the story development and the delicious conflict that you've developed that you've set up for your characters. We have been uh, talking with Arwen Ellis Dayton, author of Seeker, and it's. Uh, it's sequel, which is Traveler, Traveler, and the book, the third one you are working on now, which is called Disruptor. They are from uh, RandomHouseTeens.com, uh, Delacorte Press. Uh, the website is SeekerSeries.com if you'd like to find out more about these books. Arwen, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of The Event Horizon. It has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That was so much fun. Thank you for joining us this evening for episode 130 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for March 19th, 2016, with your hosts, Susan L. Fox and Gene Turnbow. Our guest this evening has been science fiction writer Arwen Ellis Dayton, author of The Seeker series, as published by Random House. This episode will air again on March 20th, 2016, at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, and at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. Once all the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others as downloads on KryptonRadio.com and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. If you are an author or other creator and would like to be on the show, please contact our production manager, Kat Carter, at katcarter at KryptonRadio.com. If you would like to become a patron of the Geeky Arts, and we strongly recommend that you do, you can do so for as little as $1 to $5 a month. Please visit patreon.com slash kryptonradio to join the Krypton Radio family of patrons and help keep this station on the air. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by Mark Schirmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents, except where provided by others, are copyright 2016 by the Krypton Media Group, Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi. For your Wi-Fi. And let's see what we got. Thank you for joining us this evening for episode 130 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for March 19th, 2016.